Well, if you have a Bible, if you turn to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 14, we'll be reading from verses 1 to 23 today. It says, One day Jonathan the son of Saul said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Magron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sena. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed about 20 men within as it within as it were a half furrow's length and an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp in the field and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked and behold the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow. And there was a very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp... Even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day in the battle beyond Bethaven. Well, have you ever been in a rush to go somewhere and you're making really good time and then on your way there you realize there's a train coming? And you see that arm go down, and the train goes across. Either it's a really, really slow train, or it's a train that's really, really long, and you can't see the end of it. And you were making good time, but then you're kind of stopped in your tracks. Well, that's really frustrating. But I can't imagine how frustrating it would be if you were running a marathon, and a train came in your path. 
And that's exactly what happened to 100 runners who were running a marathon uh, some years ago in Pennsylvania. And one of those runners in particular, it was his last opportunity to qualify for the Boston Marathon. And he ended up meeting, missing the cut by eight minutes because of that train that came across the tracks in the midst of the marathon. The uh, organization who ran the marathon had received assurances beforehand that there wouldn't be any trains that crossed the path. They had received assurances that there would be no interruptions. And yet, here the train was, going across the path of the marathon, holding people up. And I can't imagine that person who had trained for literally years to get there, and it's his last chance to make it to the Boston Marathon, and yet that train comes across and dashes his hopes. I think that's kind of what, like what we're experiencing today in our country. We all have things that we want to accomplish. We have individual goals. Some of us were planning on getting married. Some of us were planning on starting a new job or retiring or buying a house. And we have all these goals and then this crisis occurs and it's like this train goes across our path and suddenly we're stopped in our tracks. The same thing with our church. Last week we were supposed to baptize five people. Last week we were supposed to have the Iwana program where we have this time of commitment to decide if we're going to uh, do the Iwana program. Today we're supposed to meet. Next week, we're supposed to have the Easter egg hunt. We had all these plans in our mind of things that we wanted to accomplish. And just like that train crossing the marathon path, it's like a train has come across our path and stopped us in our tracks. All of our lives are interrupted in very dramatic ways. We don't know when it's going to get back to normal. And part of the difficulty of dealing with this is the uncertainty of not knowing what's going to happen. And part of the difficulty is that our relatives, even, even older relatives, don't have a frame of reference of something like this to, to give us wisdom on. And so we have all these, uh, this anxiety and fear. But I'd submit to you that despite that, despite this, the chaos and the things that are happening in our world... I think that we could describe this crisis by a different word, a word that maybe you've never heard this crisis described by, and that word is opportunity. Despite the chaos that we have experienced, there are some incredible opportunities that we might not otherwise have. Chuck Swindoll once said this, we're all faced with innumerable opportunities brilliantly described as impossible situations. We're all faced with innumerable opportunities brilliantly described, disguised as impossible situations. Practically, we have more time to spend with our families. We have time to think about the things in life that are important. And as we deal with these shortages and, and the fact that stores are closing, and we're, we have to kind of sort through what are the things in our life that are most important and what are the things that are not so important. But further, apart from this, it allows us as the church to be the church. I was talking to a friend a few days ago who uh, studied anthropology in depth and is pretty familiar with uh, what's happening in world Christianity. 
Uh, I was talking to him about this crisis, and he said this. He, he said this statement that stuck with me. He said, well, now Christians in America have a reason to trust in God. We have a tr- reason to trust in God, ladies and gentlemen. See, Christians always have faith, but that faith is never as clearly on display, display as when we experience suffering and hardship. You see, when we have a situation where our bank account is full, where our families are healthy, when we have a good job and a good marriage and everything is going well, we have good reason to honor and praise God. However, the world looks at that and says, well, of course he or she's going to praise God. Of course they're going to give glory to God. They have everything that they want or everything that they need. But what about when the bank account is empty? What about when our family is sick? What about when there's struggles in our marriage? What about when we're laid off from work? Will we praise God then? And if we do praise God, then the world looks and says, that person, he doesn't have anything. He's experienced all this suffering, and yet still he or she honors and praises God. Likewise, when we do go through experiences of suffering, our, our faith is strengthened, just like you would go to a gym to work out and your muscles are strengthened. When we go through suffering, our muscles, our spiritual muscles are strengthened. George Mueller once said this, Faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. John Piper once said this, suffering in the path of Christian obedience with joy because the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life is the clearest display of the worth of God in our lives. Therefore, faith-filled suffering is essential in this world for the most intense, authentic worship. When we're most satisfied with God in suffering, he will be most glorified in us in worship. Our problem is not styles of music. Our problem is styles of life. When we embrace more affliction for the worth of Christ, there will be more fruit in the worship of Christ. And so we have this opportunity in the midst of suffering to declare to the world, even though the world seems like it's falling apart, we cherish Jesus Christ. We believe in Jesus Christ. And he is our joy and our peace in the midst of this struggle. And so suffering can increase our faith and suffering can also point, uh, as our faith is increased, it can point other people to the gospel and to also believe in Christ. See, how we respond to this crisis is either going to point people away from Jesus or point people to Jesus. We see this truth played out in the lives of two individuals in this passage that we're looking at today, Saul and Jonathan. So let's look at the first, Saul, the negative. We see a number of things about Saul in 1 Samuel. And we see the first thing about Saul we realize is that Saul is obsessed with numbers. Chapter 13, verse 15 says, And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. 1 Samuel 15, 4 says, So, Sam, so Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. Likewise, in chapter 13, verse 11, we see that Saul is distressed that 
People are defecting. People, his troops are dwindling in size. And it seems like Saul's modus operandi is he's like, let's look at the enemy forces. Let's look at our forces. Let's count both of them up. And from there, let's make a decision. And then if he's backed into a corner, which he is in this passage, as he's greatly outnumbered, then he's like, okay, let's try to manipulate God into giving me the victory. We saw that in the previous chapter we looked at last week where he had waited for Samuel to come to him in Gilgal but when Samuel didn't come exactly when he was supposed to come Saul went and he did the uh, the sacrifice by himself in order to curry God's favor to give him the victory we're going to see in the in the verses after this that Saul makes this rash vow that nobody can eat until the battle is won and so he tries to manipulate God when his back is against the wall, wall rather than trusting in him. And so we see the result of this is there's three results. We see first that Saul is going to be rejected as king. He had the opportunity to be a king uh, in, the, in the line of God for, forever. And yet he's going to be rejected as king. We're going to see his soldiers leave him. Chapter 13, verse 6 says this, When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. Verse 8 says that he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. We see also that his soldiers are insubordinate. In the next chapter, we'll see that Saul orders that Jonathan be put to death. Even though Jonathan has uh, brought the victory to the people of Israel, even though he has given them the victory, Saul wants to put him to death. And the people are like, no, uh, Jonathan just brought us the victory. There's no way that we're going to put him to death. And you really can't blame the Israelites for not following after Saul. Because the math doesn't add up. If you look at uh, Israel's armies and you look at the Philistines, there is a big mismatch there. And so Saul is trying to lead them in his own human strength to, against the Philistines, and the people are like, I, I'm not interested in that. And so you can understand why they would be defecting. You'd understand, and apart from that, we know it from the last chapter that Israel doesn't even have armies. It doesn't even have weapons. They're, they're coming with agricultural equipment, with scythes and axes, pitchforks. And truly the only thing that the Israelites can do is be afraid and look out for themselves because that's what Saul, their leader, is doing. And we need to make sure we don't follow in the footsteps steps of, of Saul because it's easy in the climate that we live in to be consumed by facts surrounding this virus. And of course, it's good to be informed, but we can get to a place in our lives where we're so consumed by what's happening that we, could, we forget to trust in God. And it's like we're sizing up how great is this enemy and how can we defeat this enemy rather than praying and talking to God about it. And we can try to do this in our own human strength rather than trusting in God. But what if we trusted in God from the beginning? That's what Jonathan does. We see that Jonathan is not concerned at all about the numbers. And in the end of verse 6 it says, For nothing can hinder the, the, the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan realizes it's not the size of the army that's important. It's the power of God. And Jonathan believes that God can give them the victory if he so chooses. 
And Jonathan really puts himself out there, it says in the text, to get to the Philistine garrison. First of all, he only went with himself and his armor bearer, just the two of them. And to get there, it says in the text that there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The one was called Bozes, which means miry one. The other was called Sena, which means thorny one. And this would have been an incredibly treacherous route for Israel to get there, or for Jonathan to get there. And yet he walks forward in faith. And his strategy, once he gets there, is also to put himself out there. He, his, his plan is to show himself to the Philistines. And then if the Philistines say, okay, wait there, we'll come to you, then, it's, then in Jonathan's mind, it's God's will not for them to attack. But if the Philistines say, okay, come up to us, then it's God's will to attack. But, I mean, either way, at that point, they're out there. They're exposed to these the Philistine armies. And if God is not going to work on their behalf, they are probably going to be slaughtered. And I love what Jonathan says here, and it kind of just exposes the depth of Jonathan's faith. It says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. In that he acknowledges the power of God, that God can bring him the victory, but he also acknowledges that God may choose not to. And he's not going to try to manipulate God into doing something he wants him to do. He trusts in God's power and he walks forward in faith. And I think that can inform how we pray today. We can pray in faith. We can cry out to God. And as we do that, maybe God will answer. Because God is mighty, because God is powerful, he may just answer us. And if not, we don't try to manipulate him or turn our backs on him. We still keep walking forward in faith, trusting that if he allows us to walk through the valley of death, there must be a good reason for it. Look at what the result of Jonathan's faith was. The text tells us that him and his armor bearer struck down 20 men and it literally sent the Philistines into a terror. In verse 15 it says, And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison, and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked and it became a very great panic. Now we know that this was a God thing because remember the situation we looked at in the previous chapter. Israel had 3,000 troops. It says in the text that the Philistines had 30,000 chariots and 6,000 men and horses. And so the, there's a huge mismatch there. And it's incredible that these two men, Jonathan and his armor bearer, will go and attack this Philistine garrison, kill 20 men, and on that basis, all of the Philistines will be terrified. Had to be a God thing. It says in the text that there was an earthquake showing the power of God. But there's something even more remarkable that happens after this. We see that after God gives them this victory in killing 20 people, sends the Philistines into terror, it says in verse 22, look what it says, Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after God, after them in the battle. 
The people of Israel who formerly were hiding in caves and cisterns and rocks, now based upon Jonathan's faith and belief in God, now they are leaving those caves and those rocks behind, and now they're going and following after the God of Israel, and now they believe that God can bring, bring them the victory. Because of Jonathan's faith, other people's faith was strengthened. They started to believe as well. When I was growing up, my family was terrified of doing any kind of electrical work. I was told repeatedly, if you do anything like that, you could get electrocuted and die. And anytime anything broke, whether it was an outlet or a switch or a light, we had to call someone or call an electrician to take care of it. And so I grew up and I was really afraid of electricity and didn't feel like I could do anything related to uh, any even simple electrical work. But then once I got to uh, be a pastor and some things broke, I had some people to help me like Pastor Phil or Ron and they helped me replace like outlets or light fixtures and as they replaced them I kind of observed and asked some questions and I noticed that they had confidence in what they were doing. I noticed that they weren't afraid that they were going to be electrocuted because they knew exactly what to do to be safe. And as I watched them and watched their confidence, I started to become more confident working with electrical work. And because of that, I got to a point where I could do simple electrical tasks without being afraid. I think in a similar way, in the chaotic world that we live in, we need to point people to belief. We need to point people to faith. Right now, the world needs God's church to point them to a place of hope. The world needs God's church to point them to a place of peace. The world needs God's church to point them to a place of joy. And as we do that, as we live our lives with simple acts of faith that maybe don't even look like they're that big, we can have a ripple effect around, of those around us. Mark Batterson tells a story about a man named Lauren Whitehead who did a study in 1983 and he did it on the domino effect. And if you picture dominoes with uh, all different um, dominoes lined up and then you press one domino and it starts a chain reaction that goes throughout you know, as many dominoes as you have set up. But he did this study a little slightly different. In the study that he did, he determined that one domino was able to knock over an object that was one and a half times larger than it was. So, for example, a two-inch domino can topple a three-inch domino. A three-inch domino can topple a four-and-a-half-inch domino, etc., etc. By the time you get to the 18th domino, you could knock over the Leaning Tower of Pisa. By the time you got to the 23rd, uh, tower, or the 23rd domino, you could knock over the Eiffel Tower. By the time you get to the 29th domino, you could take down the Empire State Building. Batterson writes this, in the realm of mathematics, there are two types of progression, linear and geometric. Linear progression is 2 plus 2 equals 4. Geometric progression is compound doubling. 2 times 2 equals 4. If you take 30 linear steps, you're 90 feet from where you started, but if you take 30 geometric steps, you've circled the earth 26 times. Faith isn't linear. Faith is geometric. 
Every decision we make, every step of faith we take has a chain reaction. And those chain reactions set off a thousand chain reactions we aren't even aware of. They won't be revealed until we reach the other side of the space-time continuum. So our faith, our belief in God can have a dramatic effect on those around us. Now you might say, well, Pastor Matt, I, uh, I got to be honest, I don't have that kind of faith. I don't trust in God like I feel like I should. I mean, I see all the things that are happening in our world today, and honestly, I'm terrified, and my faith is really weak. Well, one author once said this, feed your faith, and your doubts will starve to death. Feed your faith, and your doubts will starve to death. Romans 12 says that as Christians, we have a great cloud of witnesses. Uh, and I believe that the faith of other Christians, both past and present, can strongly encourage and strengthen our faith. We can look at people both in Scripture and outside of Scripture. We can look at someone like Margaret and Rinkert. He was a pastor in Eilenburg during the traumatic 30 years war from 1618 to 1648. Eilenburg became a walled refuge uh, for many in the surrounding area, and because there were so many people, it was filled with famine and epidemics. And in the year 1637, it was called the, the year of the great pestilence, this great plague went through the city. And as the plague went through the city, there were four pastors. One of the pastors left the town, wouldn't come back. Rinkert ended up uh, officiating the funerals of the other two pastors who passed away from the from the plague. It got so bad that he was officiating the funerals of 40 to 50 people per day. Overall, he officiated the funerals of 4,480 people. In May of the same year, his own wife died. And yet, Pastor Rinker wrote the following prayer for his children to offer to the Lord. He said, Now thank we all our God with hearts and hands and voices, whose wondrous things who wondrous things hath done, in whom this world rejoices, who from our mother's arms hath led us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. What incredible faith in the midst of such suffering and hardship that he held on to his faith in God. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us about a number of people of faith. He tells us about... Uh, the, the author tells us about Noah. We can consider his example who, while the world was ridiculing, he was out building a boat day after day after day. Day after day after day. We consider Abraham who left his homeland to go to a place that he didn't know. Consider Joseph who asked that his bones be returned to the promised land after his death. Consider Moses who left the safety and security of Egypt to go and to serve God's people. Consider the example of the Apostle Paul who poured out his very life to make sure that the gospel was proclaimed. Who experienced beatings and shipwrecks and all manner of hardship for the cause of Christ. Who said for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Consider finally the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. 
Hebrews 12, 1-3 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary, or faint-hearted. See, currently, we're dealing with potentialities. We're concerned about getting the coronavirus, or if we get it, what it will look like. Will we be hospitalized? Will we possibly die from this illness? Jesus, on the other hand, knew exactly what he was getting into. Jesus knew that he was going to die in the most horrific way imaginable. He knew that his body would be beaten to shreds. He knew that there would be a crown of thorns that would be placed on his head. He knew that they would rip the fibers from his beard. He knew that they would put him on the cross, nailing his hands and his feet, and he would be gasping for air. He knew that he would experience thirst that was overwhelming. And he also knew that he could prevent it. He also knew that he didn't have to go. He also knew that he could stay in the glory of heaven forever and ever, where he had dwelled from all eternity past, and yet still he chose to go to the earth. Still he chose to fulfill the Father's plan, even though that plan took him to a place of darkness. And through his sacrificial death, untold millions can have hope today. And because of what he did, because of his faith in God and faithfulness to God's plan, we can know that God will be faithful to us. Because of his faithfulness, we can have hope that this illness is not going to defeat us as the church. Because of his faith, we can have hope that heaven is our destiny. And we can believe in God even if it takes us through the valley of the shadow of death. Church, today, through this crisis, we have an amazing opportunity. An opportunity to display the glory of Jesus Christ to the world. That we can declare to the world, no matter what happens, Jesus is enough for us. And will we be a part of that cloud of witnesses that point people to Jesus Christ? Because how we handle this crisis will either point people to Jesus or it will point people away from Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your faithfulness in coming to the earth to die on the cross for our sins. Even though you knew the horrors of what you would experience, Lord, we thank you for coming out of love for us. Lord, as we walk through this trial, Lord, we pray first that you would bring relief, Lord. We just pray that you'd bring an end to this if you see fit, Lord. But if not, Lord, we just pray that we would display your glory and your worth through the way that we live our lives, that we would express faith even in the midst of darkness. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.